Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I have to admit I'm wearing a number of hats at the current moment, including this week returning to the Fifth Avenue Theater to co-direct Irving Berlin's White Christmas. Rehearsals have just begun, and I couldn't be more excited about it. At the same time, I'm also working on deadline for my upcoming book, also titled Broadway Nation, and I couldn't be more excited about that. But of course, first and foremost, I want to keep this podcast vital and alive in the midst of everything else. So today, I've asked my frequent co-host, and I know a favorite of many of yours, Albert Evans, to take over the podcast. I'll be back next week with another new episode, but in the meantime, I know you'll be in great hands with Albert. Here we go. Thanks, David, for giving me the keys to Broadway Nation. I promise to tidy up before I go. And hello to everyone listening. David told me I could talk about whatever I wanted to, so I thought and perused and dithered and delayed for weeks until I finally picked a topic which I don't think has been overanalyzed, the pastiche musical. Pastiche. What a strange word. It's mostly used in the arts, where it means a work that lovingly imitates the style of another artist or era. In the theater, that could mean the manner of Cole Porter or Fred Astaire, or the musicals of another decade. Stephen Sondheim was a master of the song pastiche. About half of his Follies score is written in imitation of theater songs of the past. After all, the characters are often revisiting signature songs from their youth. So, Beautiful Girls is a Ziegfeld beauty parade number modeled on Irving Berlin's A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody. Other pastiche songs from Follies include Broadway Baby, A Paris, Rain on the Roof, One Last Kiss, Who's That Woman, and more that I'm forgetting. In Follies, pastiche evokes memories, sometimes painful memories. In the final Loveland sequence, Buddy, Sally, Phyllis, and Ben are trapped, along with the ghosts of their younger selves, in a sort of nightmare Follies, performing pastiche numbers that force them to act out their personal failures. All afternoon doing every little chore 
wonder the first audiences were a bit disconcerted. This was not what a 1971 audience expected from a show called Follies, and they either hated it or they thought it was the greatest thing ever. And it's still a ride that um, some people just don't want to go on. But today I'd like to talk about musicals that are entirely pastiche, Songs, dialogue, setting, and style. Shows that ask us to pretend that they were written decades ago. They allow us to laugh at their dated theatrics while still getting involved, even emotionally moved by the characters' frankly trivial dilemmas. The heyday of pastiche shows was the 1950s and 60s. By mid-century, musical theater had moved on to the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical play paradigm, leaving the sometimes ramshackle structure of anything-for-a-laugh musical comedy with its choruses of identically dressed boys and girls, as they were called, leaving all that behind in favor of realism. Now musical comedy was firmly in the past and ripe for parody. Let's look at three pastiche musicals, two from the 1950s and one from the 1960s. The first is Sandy Wilson's The Boyfriend. In a recent episode of Broadway Nation, David interviewed Deborah Phillips, the author of And This Is My Friend Sandy, a long overdue book about Sandy Wilson and London Fringe Theatre in the 1950s. And if you haven't heard those episodes, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to them. But here is the short version. Sandy Wilson was born in 1924 to a middle-class family who had money enough to send him to good middle-class schools where he excelled. He grew up surrounded by popular music on gramophone records and learned to play all the current songs on the family piano. In the 1940s, when he was in his own 20s, he longed for the innocent and tuneful musicals of his childhood, which he was too young to have actually seen, but later somehow recreated in his fantasies. During the Second World War, he served as a file clerk in the Royal Army Ordnance Corps in Egypt and Iraq. Then returning home, he got a scholarship to Oxford, where he wrote songs for student reviews, then attended the Old Vic Theatre School on a production course. Sandy was soon drawn to London and the Soho Theatre scene, where he wrote reviews and specialty material for performers like Peter Cook and Hermione Gingold. Need I mention that he was gay? Deborah Phillips paints a vivid picture of the lively but guarded gay scene of the Soho district with its artists, hustlers, criminals, bohemians, and small, discreet theaters. Like any big city bohemia, Soho had a large queer presence at a time when homosexuality was a prison offense and a positive representation of it on stage could land a theater in severe legal trouble. But the more daring theaters dodged censorship. By operating as private clubs, patrons had to become members, 
but nobody was fooled. Sandy found an artistic home at the Players Theater, one of those members-only playhouses, where in 1953 he wrote the first version of The Boyfriend as a Christmas treat. Friend was too delightful to be shelved. It was quickly expanded to a full three-act musical comedy. I call it the first pure pastiche musical, a breezy new 1920s show that invited the audience to rediscover the authentic style of the 1920s jazz age musical. It was so successful that it transferred to the West End, where it stayed for over 2,000 performances. In 1954, The Boyfriend opened on Broadway, introducing 19-year-old Julie Andrews to America. Julie followed that with My Fair Lady and, well, you know the rest. Let's consider the songs of The Boyfriend and Wilson's uncanny imitation of the great American and British show composers of the 1920s. Vincent Newman's No No Nanette, the classic musical comedy of the 1920s, opened with a harmoniously costumed line of chorus girls singing straight out to the audience and announcing, Flappers are we. Now that's efficiency. No tiresome exposition. Here's who we are. You see us. We see you. Now on with the show. The boyfriend uses the same time-saving strategy. The female ensemble are giddy rich girls at a posh finishing school. As they explain to their maid and to us in the audience... In Good News, the 1927 college football musical, the ensemble helpfully informs us, students are we, as if we didn't know. Other shows announced that the chorus members were Mounties, Bandits, Gold Miners, Dock Workers, etc., etc. Sandy Wilson's genius was that he could imitate old songs without sounding stale. 
For example, here's the title song from Rodgers and Hart's 1926 musical, The Girlfriend. Isn't she cute? Isn't she sweet? She's gentle and metal and nearly complete. She's knockout, she's regal, her beauty's illegal. She's a girlfriend. No, no, no. Take her to dance, take her to tea. It's stunning, how stunning this lady can be. A look at the vision will cause a collision. She's a girlfriend. No, no, no. She is smart, she's refined. How can she be real? She has heart, she has mind. Gosh, the girl's ideal. Isn't she cute? Isn't she sweet? And I fall, you die for a pleasure to meet. In my funny fashion, I'm cursed with a passion for the girlfriend. Sandy Wilson not only borrows two-thirds of the girlfriend's title, but he writes a title song that's frankly even more memorable. We've got to have, we want to have, for it's so dreary not to have that certain thing called the boyfriend. We scheme about and dream about and we've been known to scream about that certain thing called the boyfriend. Life without us is quite impossible and devoid of all charms. No amount of idle gossip will keep them out of our arms. Nanette had a big hit with I Want to Be Happy, so Sandy Wilson writes, I Could Be Happy With You. And what 1920s musical could neglect the Charleston? To dance with you is thrilling to my poor figure. So baby, say you're willing to shake a leg. Oh, won't you, Charleston, with me? Won't you, Charleston, with me? And while the band is playing that, oh, Modio, do around we will go. Together we'll show them how the Charleston is done. We'll surprise everyone. Just think what heaven it's gonna be if you will, Charleston, Charleston, with me. Thank you, girl with funny voice. The Boyfriend ticks every box on the musical comedy list. But the miracle of The Boyfriend is that it's not a weren't they silly then spoof. Sandy Wilson called it a loving valentine to a vanished age. Not making fun of, but making fun with. And when played sincerely, as he wanted, The Boyfriend's two-dimensional characters can break your cynical old heart. May I have this dance, Pierrette? I'm afraid I can't dance with a stranger. But I am Pierrot. You are Pierrette. Surely we are not strangers. But I, I don't know who you are. Perhaps this kiss will remind you. It isn't! It isn't! Yes, Polly. It is I. Tony! Polly.
The Boyfriend opened on Broadway in 1954, but it was a small show, unlike big blockbusters like Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma, South Pacific, and The King and I, and other shows written in the new, serious musical play style. And its success may have suggested to producers that, hmm, maybe there's still money to be made from those actual old shows. But mounting a Broadway show was expensive. A less risky venue was Off-Broadway, which emerged during the 1950s with artsy offerings like Brechton Vile's Three Penny Opera, which ran for over 2,000 performances and placed an unlikely song on the pop charts. Oh, the shark, babe, has such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe, and it keeps it out of sight. Before long, New York saw a string of budget revivals of forgotten musicals, like Jerome Kern's Leave It to Jane, and continuing into the 1960s with Rodgers and Hart's Boys from Syracuse, and a really fantastic revival of Cole Porter's Anything Goes. And then, inspired by the success of shows like The Boyfriend, more pastiche shows, newly written in the old style, began to pop up. Notably, Rick Basoyan's sly operetta spoof, Little Mary Sunshine. Like Sandy Wilson, Rick Basoyan was born in 1924. He was raised in California and served in World War II in the U.S. Army Special Services Entertainment Division. After the war, Basoyan returned home, toured for a couple of years in a Gilbert and Sullivan troupe, then moved to New York, where he studied at the American Theater Wing and taught musical comedy at the Stella Adler Studio. In 1957, he contributed songs to a little nightclub review, and his Act Two finale was titled Gems from Little Mary Sunshine. Two years later, he expanded that short skit into a full musical, a takeoff on old-fashioned operetta and related targets. It was a surprise hit and ran for three years and 1,143 performances. Over the decades, this very easy-to-produce show has racked up over 100,000 productions in schools and amateur and semi-professional theaters. Even now, you can see recent high school and college productions on YouTube, long after the show's spoofs have been forgotten. Little Mary Sunshine is set at a tourist inn high in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, or the Canadian Mounties of Rosemarie have been reimagined as sturdy American forest rangers. Here's their introduction, which might as well be called Forest Rangers Are We. Yes, sir! He's cheerful on a swift, the end will be 
the unlikely guests at the inn include a giggling gaggle of young ladies from a finishing school, Shades of the Boyfriend, as well as a Viennese opera diva and her former suitor, a Washington diplomat. Also unfortunately present in the plot are three operetta Indians, and I use the term deliberately. These three have no resemblance to Native Americans, alive or dead, and their stereotypical portrayals make modern productions questionable. Little Mary Potts is the Jeanette MacDonald of the Rockies, and Captain Jim is her Nelson Eddy figure. And that brings up an important point. In 1958, a dwindling number of people would have remembered the American stage stars of Rosemarie, The New Moon, or Naughty Marietta. But everyone still knew the Hollywood versions of these shows, starring Nelson and Jeanette, who are actually quite good in these adaptations, and their songs are actually quite ripe for pastiche. The big love duet in Rosemarie is the haunting Indian love call. In Little Mary Sunshine, Rick Basoyan recycles it as the over-the-top Colorado love call. Here they are, back to back. When I'm calling you Yeah. 
By the way, that recording of Colorado Love Call is from the London cast, starring the incomparable Patricia Rutledge. Besoyan's score casts its net wide. It recalls songs from Gilbert and Sullivan, the turn-of-the-century blockbuster Floridora, the operettas and musical comedies of Victor Herbert, Jerome Kern, Rudolf Frimmel, Sigmund Romberg, and even the counterpoint songs of Irving Berlin. Another example, Victor Herbert's Naughty Marietta has a sprightly title song. Naughty Marietta can be good, But you should say she Which Pesoyan pastiches as a mild scolding to the mischievous soubrette, Nancy Twinkle. Oh, Nancy, whatever are we going to do with you? We can't condone your headstrong way, and yet you make our lives so gay. Naughty, naughty, Nancy, you're so mischievous, it's true. You're so full of ginger and so full of spice. We can't help but wonder how a naughty girl like you can be so naughty, yet so very nice. You're probably noticing that, unlike the restrained pastiche of the boyfriend, Little Mary Sunshine has a more overt tone of parody. The songs are set up to elicit laughs. This may be because it was developed from a nightclub sketch or just Rick Besoyan's sense of humor, but there is certainly a broad note of musical burlesque, the kind of thing we'd see a decade later on The Carol Burnett Show. Little Mary herself was played by a young unknown named Eileen Brennan, a role that launched her long career on stage, screen, and television. She was Irene Malloy in Hello, Dolly. She appeared in The Last Picture Show, and she played Captain Doreen Lewis in Private Benjamin, both the film and the TV show. Also in the Little Mary Sunshine cast was future Broadway stalwart John McMartin as song and dance man Billy Jester. Once in a blue, I think you I often think I like to love you. Once in a blue moon, I think you go. It's rather pleasing to be so teasing. Once in a blue moon, I think you hate me. I only hate you cause I love you. Once in a blue moon, I think you won't. I'm undecided and must be guided. McMartin later created the role of Oscar in Sweet Charity and Ben Stone in Follies. Once in a blue moon, you're in a world. You set me reeling with such a feeling. Why this confusion? Why this confusion? Here's the conclusion. Here's the conclusion. You I am your once in a blue Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be back right after this quick break. 
Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com bn50 and use code bn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Both The Boyfriend and Little Mary Sunshine were written by gay authors, although, of course, that was never publicized. It was the 50s, after all. But both shows were shot through with a queer sensibility that had emerged long ago, perhaps the late 18th century. It was a sensibility that had a name in the secret gay world, a name that was all but unknown to straight society, but was about to be brought into the light by the scholar Susan Sontag in her 1964 article, Notes on Camp. Sontag's still brilliant essay consisted of 58 numbered notes approaching Camp from different angles as topics for further academic study. She doesn't get around to the homosexual affinity for Camp till note 51, although earlier she does drop code words like androgynous and epicene. I think it's fair to say that Notes on Camp launched the thriving academic field of gay studies and may be inadvertently one of the founding documents of gay liberation. For the next 15 years or so, Camp was everywhere. In Streisand's early nightclub appearances, wearing antique thrift shop get-ups, singing secondhand rows, in newly minted pop songs like Winchester Cathedral, Everything Old is New Again, and in Tiny Tim's outrageous persona on The Tonight Show. And even in the vaudeville and music hall sounds that float through the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album, for the unconverted squares, camp was repackaged as nostalgia, but the gay subtext was always present. 
pastiche musical was written during the first full flowering of American gay sensibility. The Boyfriend was a parody of a 1920s musical. Little Mary Sunshine has a double target, antique operettas and their film versions. Dames at Sea, our third pastiche musical, is a satiric spoof of 1930s musical movies. Its main referent is the film musicals choreographed and sometimes directed by the unique Busby Berkeley, who started on Broadway as a stage choreographer or dance director because, let's face it, choreographer was far too high class a term for someone who just moved showgirls around in formation. But one of his stage shows, Woofy, became a Hollywood movie in 1930 with its stage star, Eddie Cantor, and Berkeley, its dance director, came along for the ride. In Hollywood, his bizarre imagination was allowed free reign. His production numbers employed seemingly hundreds of beautiful girls, diving into Art Deco swimming pools, playing neon violins, and arranging themselves into dazzling kaleidoscopic patterns filmed by overhead cameras, a perspective no stage could match. Dames at Sea began as a no-budget, off-off-Broadway entertainment at the Café Chino, a coffee shop-slash-unlicensed performance space in the West Village. Founded by former dancer Joe Chino on a stage built on milk cartons, the tiny cafe featured beatnik poetry and play readings and soon became a venue where young playwrights like John Guare, Tom Ian, Sam Shepard, Robert Patrick, and Lanford Wilson got their first public hearings. Joe Chino had a very unusual way of choosing his authors. He didn't read their scripts. He made all his decisions based on their astrological signs. Might be as good a way as any. Actors who graduated from Cafe Chino Productions include Harvey Keitel, Al Pacino, and Bernadette Peters, who starred in a rare Cafe Chino musical, Dames at Sea, or Gold Diggers Afloat. Written by Jim Wise, George Hameson, and Robin Miller, the show was little more than a short sketch, but director Robert Dada lengthened it to 50 minutes and later claimed to have conceived and written much of the show. But when it moved to the Bowery Lane Theater and then to the Theater de Lee on Christopher Street, Dada's name and participation had somehow been erased. I saw Dames at Sea at the Bowery Lane, and it left a lasting impression. It was actually the first musical I ever saw in New York, and I laughed so hard I honestly couldn't breathe. 19-year-old Bernadette Peters was perfection as the Ruby Keeler character. She artfully captured Keeler's charmingly naive line readings and heavy-footed hoofing, 
while greatly improving on her vocal delivery. The story borrows heavily from Warner Brothers' 42nd Street. Ruby arrives from Utah with nothing but tap shoes in her suitcase and a prayer in her heart. She gets a job in a Broadway chorus and meets Dick, a sailor and aspiring songwriter. The theater is about to be torn down. The show somehow moves to the deck of a battleship. The leading lady becomes seasick, and Ruby steps in to save the day and become a star, all in 24 hours, like you do. Dames at Sea kept the Café Chino's miniature style as its comic twist, delivering Busby Berkeley-style extravaganza with a cast of six, a laughably cheap set, and a two-piano orchestra. Now, a word to you cast recording collectors. The Dames at Sea album features terrific orchestrations by young Jonathan Tunick, which perfectly capture the sound of the 1930s Warner Brothers movies, only somewhat miniaturized. Tunick, of course, would go on to become the dean of theater orchestrators and score most of the Sondheim shows. Now, I have a feeling that most of you are probably familiar with the Dames at Sea score, so I'm not going to dwell on it, except to say that the Dames at Sea songs, like those in The Boyfriend and Little Mary Sunshine, often echo vintage tunes while cautiously avoiding copyright issues. But one Dames at Sea song, that Mr. Man of Mine, was just a little too close to a Gershwin standard, and maybe for that reason it was omitted from the published vocal selections while it does remain in the score. So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I submit the two songs for your judgment. Someday he'll come along, the man I love, and he'll be big and strong, the man I love. And when he comes my way, I'll do my best to make him stay. No king was on, no Dempsey or Gene Tunney, no movie star, his face was kind of funny. We might add Losing My Mind to the Man I Love sound-alikes, but in Follies it's obviously a loving homage, not a rip-off. The sun comes up, I think about you. The coffee cup, I think about you. Like The Boyfriend and Little Mary Sunshine, Dames at Sea emerged from humble origins to become a major hit. And, lo and behold, Bernadette Peters became a major star. I'm the star tar of the Navy. I'm the hit miss of the sea. When the ocean's getting wavy, On the poop deck, on the ship shape, shipment in the hold. 
I'm the star tar, I'm the tar star of the navy blue and gold. Heave ho, I'm the top cub in the crow's nest. I'm the big bell sailors love to ring in the forecastle. As the old show audience entered their 70s, the nostalgia connection to the old shows aged as well. Now, if a vintage musical comedy was revived, it would be as a state-of-the-art Broadway extravaganza, something the boomers could enjoy. These shows could be great fun, like the wholly unexpected revival of No No Nanette, with a rewritten book and Take No Prisoners orchestrations. The Overture is a show in itself. Or Gower Champion's Magnum Opus, 42nd Street, which discarded the film's dark underpinnings and offered a series of gorgeous dances stitched together with a strictly functional script. But now the shows of the new audience's youth were the musical plays of the 40s and 50s, and they were written with artistry and humanity and real drama and were a lot harder to make fun of, much less with. So I'm going to draw the curtain. Thank you, Broadway Nation, for listening to my man-in-chair ramblings. Back to you, David. Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Where are we?
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.